Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to a Ratchet and Respectable. So, I have good news and I have bad news. I feel like I do this at the end of every year. You should be comfortable with it by now. Today, we celebrate the 400th episode of Ratchet and Respectable. I've never celebrated any episode of the show before, not 50, not 100, not 250, like you get the drift. I've never celebrated anything for this podcast before. This is the very first time. The good news is that we've reached episode 400. It's not quite the milestone to 500, but it's a milestone nonetheless, and I'm very glad that I took an opportunity to celebrate it. I had a dinner party in Ghana. We had a private room at the Polo Club, me and 12 of my friends. We had champagne, we had cake, we had cupcakes. There were chandeliers, there were sparklers, there was much conversation. It turned from one point to a celebration to like a mastermind. I'd never had the opportunity to have like my core circle of women in Ghana. Like I've met them in all different aspects of my life since I've been on the continent and they'd never met each other. But all my friends here are badass women, very accomplished, whether it's creative or corporate They live well. They enjoy life. They're very smart. They're very powerful. They're very opinionated. When you get those kind of women together in a group, magic happens. So it went from celebration to brainstorming. Like, okay, like we good. We got to 400. It's big. But how do we blow it up and make it bigger? Really smart, good, creative ideas. Like I have some stuff of my own that I've been thinking about. They also gave me great perspective in how to continue to build the podcast. So that's the good news. So 400, a bright future, big ideas that will be executed on the horizon. The bad news, I'm about to take a hiatus. I don't think I've taken one episode off the entire year. And not that I need to justify taking a break because Lord knows I should have done it sooner. But there's just some things that I want to do for the podcast and then other interests that I have. I just need to buckle down and focus in order to execute some new, brighter, bigger ideas. I made the great big declaration, I think somewhere in like August, September, that my focus wasn't work. My focus was on leisure. My focus was on enjoying life. And I've done that. I leisure very, very well. But I want to proactively go into work mode, not grind mode. I'm not going back to 16, 18 hour days, not even 12 hour days. Like I max out at 10, but I just need to focus on some things for a minute. So I'm going to take a little hiatus after this episode. We'll talk again in February. I'll be present online, maybe. I'm not going to go radio silent, but I need to take a little time to myself. So full focus for the month of January, and then I'll be back in February for our regularly scheduled podcast every Tuesday, every Friday. But we are here now, and while we are here, we have some things that we need to discuss. Need, not want. I woke up this morning, like my timelines on every platform We're talking about power bottoms. And I was like, excuse me? 
There is a TikTok video that has clearly gone viral where a woman alleges, she says allegedly 50 million times, she's not trying to get sued, alleges some really crazy allegations, the craziest of which is about a prominent figure in the black community, a man, a married man, who she alleges has been engaging in same-sex dalliances, and then also that he's been lawyering up because all of his dalliances were not consensual. There's a young man who is set to sue him, hence his lawyering up. The allegations are so damning, and it's hearsay. It's not like the person who it allegedly happened to is publicly accusing someone of doing it. It's a woman on TikTok who never states what her affiliation is to this information. And then she says she heard it from this guy. And then she plays the audio of the guy speaking and he gives more details, but it's not clear who the guy is, how he's privy to this information. Is he besties with the potential accuser? Is he somebody's stylist? Is he an intern at the law firm who's handling the case? There's no information. It's essentially barbershop talk. Somebody's friend's cousin's sister-in-law said some shit and then now it's all over the internet. The other big thing that's alleged in this video is that Cassie turned over a bunch of information to the FBI. Videos of, of crazy sex acts, USB drives with all kinds of information, Kim Porter's burner phone. I mean, it's very juicy gossip, but as of right now, that's all that it is. For me, discussing this doesn't pass my ethics test. The public figure who is accused of doing nefarious, salacious, and criminal shit, if we're talking about sexual assault, I'm more comfortable discussing it if the accuser actually comes forward and says, this is what happened to me. Or, you know, there's a John Doe lawsuit. We've talked about lawsuits against Diddy. At least one of them, the woman who says she was 17 at the time, is a Jane Doe lawsuit. If the person who is alleged to have been assaulted wants to file a lawsuit, we can go through it page by page like we've done previously. I might come off hiatus for that. As of right now, it doesn't pass my ethics test to talk about it in detail. The only reason that I feel comfortable mentioning it right now is because literally power bottom and the person's name is trending on Twitter right now. So people waking up the same way I was was like, why is everyone discussing power bottoms? Also, if you don't know what Power Bottom is, please go Google. <laughs> oh, fuck it. I guess that's why y'all come on here. It's um, in same-sex relations, it's the person who's the receiver, but is also still dominant. So if you think about taking it in the ass and throwing it back, essentially what a Power Bottom is. It's such a crazy allegation. Also, I put nothing past anyone. People are like, he would never. Would he? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I hope not because he's a married man. I don't know what his stance is on homosexuality. If he embraces the gays and then turns out to be, you know, somewhere sliding on the Kinsley scale, so be it. If he's been cheating on his wife with men, like that's something they got to take up with one another. And if he's been a hypocrite calling out gay folk, which is bad all on its own, leave gay folks alone. The LGBTQIA+, remember we decided Plus was the superheroes? You got to watch that show on Amazon about the superheroes in order to get that. It's bad enough if you're just out here talking about gay folks and being hetero. But if you're out here like shaming gay folks and is out here sliding on the Kinsey scale and engaging in a whole bunch of gay sex, sir, sir, I hope this is not the case.
He has not released a statement yet, to my knowledge, addressing these rumors. And I can't even call it on whether he will or won't. I won't be around. I won't be around to commentate on it unless there's a lawsuit. But you stay tuned to see if there's any comment from him. What else do we have on the list? You know what? We got so caught up. And maybe I should say I, not we. I got so caught up in all these lawsuits against Diddy and a whole bunch of other people. Because I remember we did one episode and we went through a whole list of lawsuits. I got so caught up in this slate of lawsuits. A lot of them popped up right before the New York Survivors Act ended. We talked about those in so much detail. And what we didn't talk about were the damages in a hell of a lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani. The former mayor of New York City, once known as America's mayor for his handling of 9-11. At one point, his name was thrown out as a contender for president of the United States, like when it was still considered prestigious before Donald Trump got there. He was also Time's Person of the Year. I, I point his accolades from once upon a time out just to contrast it with how far he has fallen. Remember he did the press conference in front of the wrong Four Seasons? They thought they were doing it in the ballroom of a hotel, but they ended up in like some back alley down the street from a porn shop. And Rudy Giuliani had freshly dyed his hair and he was sweating so bad in the sun that the dye started running down his face. It was a very low moment in his life, but it's gone lower. Rudy Giuliani was found liable for making false and defamatory, was found liable false and defamatory allegations against two women, two black women, who he accused more than a dozen times of tampering with votes for the 2020 presidential election. He said the women who were working at a facility in Fulton County, Georgia, he claims they were scanning ballots for Joe Biden multiple times. He posted videos of the women. He posted their names. And the result was he unleashed holy hell upon these women. It's a mother and daughter. Wandrea Moss, she goes by Shay, and her mother, Ruby Freeman. The daughter, Miss Shay, she's a former voter registration officer in Fulton County. She testified that her life had been, quote, flipped upside down when Trump allies, including Giuliani, began falsely claiming that she and her mother engaged in fraud after the November election. She said she was forced to leave her job. She was fearful of going out alone. She received a flood of racist messages that included threats to lynch her and her mother. I found this story on AP because I was like, wait, what? The woman is 39. Her mother is 64. She said she had to move out of her home in January 2021 after people came with bullhorns. And then the FBI told her she wasn't safe. She said, I was scared. I didn't know if they were coming to kill me. Freeman, that's the mama. She said she eventually had to sell her home. She said she lived out of her car for a time as, quote, the relentless drumbeat of harassment made friends and fellow church members afraid to be associated with her. She says now she stays holed up inside and avoids introducing herself to neighbors out of fear her name will be recognized. She said, quote, it's so scary anytime I go anywhere if I have to use my name. They said in court she was gasping through tears trying to get her words out. She said, I miss my old neighborhood because I was me. I could introduce myself. 
Now I don't have a name really. Her daughter had testified the day before she detailed nightmares, panic attacks, and depression brought on by an onslaught of threatening and racist messages that turned her life upside down and forced her from a job she loves. So during this part of the trial, Giuliani had already been found liable for defamation, and he acknowledged to the courts that he made public comments that falsely claimed these two black women had committed fraud while counting ballots. The trial was to determine how much the women should be compensated for what Giuliani had done to them. The jury awarded them $148 million American USD dollars and dineros. Cute black ladies. Ma I'm looking at this picture. Mama got on a whole purple outfit and matching purple hair. The mama. $148 million American USD dollars and dineros by a lot of outfits and matching hair. Good for mama. It's the least they could have done. And I say that because you know this mofo continued to talk shit about them. Even after a jury awarded them $148 million American USD dollars and dineros, which, to be clear, he does not have. They about to bankrupt his ass. I guess he has nothing to lose. The women, however, do. They sued his ass again. Because he's still talking shit. They were like, we told his lawyers, like, you've lost the case. You acknowledged to the courts that you made false statements. And you still out here talking shit about us? So they sued him again. They want more money and they want the judge to rule that he can't talk about them no more. Which I was like, fair game. Fair game. They also went to court. Usually when the court finds that somebody needs to pay, it has to be paid within 30 days. They petitioned the court to make Giuliani pay sooner than later. One, because he's out here talking shit about like doing an appeal and he's not going to pay and all this other stuff. But also, he has multiple other lawsuits that he's facing, one of which has the possibility of landing him in jail. So they were like, before everybody else comes to get their piece of the pie, let us recover as much of his money as we possibly can before all these other people come for him too. I read on AP... It says Giuliani has pled not guilty in a criminal case in Georgia, which accuses him of participating in a wide-ranging conspiracy to thwart the will of Georgia's voters who had selected Democrat Joe Biden over the Republican incumbent. He faces 13 charges, including violation of Georgia's anti-racketeering law. Further down the article, it details more lawsuits. There's a defamation case filed by Dominion in 2021. If you remember, Dominion sued Fox News for defamation, for saying that Dominion rigged their voting systems. Fox News settled with Dominion for nearly 800 million American USD dollars in dinero. So they went after the news organization and they're also going after Giuliani. That's not going to end well for him. Um, AP notes he was also sued in September by a former lawyer who claimed Giuliani had only paid a fraction of more than $1 million in legal fees racked up from investigations into his efforts to keep Trump in the White House. Also in May, a woman who said she worked for Giuliani sued him, alleging he owed her nearly $2 million in unpaid wages and he had coerced her into sex. Notably, Giuliani has denied the allegations. And he admits through his attorneys that he is, quote, in dire financial straits. However, the ladies that just won this lawsuit, 
They note that he does have, quote, substantial assets. He's got a condo in South Florida, a co-op in Manhattan that's currently on the market for $6.1 million, along with, quote, numerous accounts at New York banks. They want their monies. They going after Giuliani like Cardi after Tasha K. I'm looking at Washington Post. It says Hunter Biden is also suing Giuliani. Biden's kid? How'd I miss this? I mean, I don't live in America. I'm looking up this on CNN. Hold on. Hunter Biden sues Rudy Giuliani and his former attorney, alleging they tried to hack his devices. It's a civil suit. Hunter Biden claims Giuliani and his former attorney caused, quote, total annihilation of his digital privacy and violated federal and state computer privacy laws through their alleged efforts to hack his devices. Biden accuses both of the men of spending years, quote, hacking into, tampering with, manipulating, copying, disseminating, and generally obsessing over data that they were given that was taken or stolen from his devices. Again, I'm reading this on CNN, who's quoting from the lawsuit. Plaintiff has demanded defendants Giuliani and his lawyer, Costello, Robert Costello, cease their unlawful activities with respect to plaintiff's data and return any data in their possession belonging to plaintiff, but they have refused to do so. Defendant statements suggest that their unlawful hacking activities are ongoing today and that unless stopped will continue into the future, thereby necessitating this action. Oh dear. I want the black ladies to get their monies. I hope they receive some funding, ends, dividends, something sooner than later. Good for them. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Oh dear, we have distressing breaking news right now. I'm seeing a story come through about a lawsuit filed against Vin Diesel. It's on all the major publications. We're going to read about it from the New York Times. Despite me putting trigger warning in the captions, apparently a bunch of people don't read the captions. You've asked for trigger warnings when I talk about sexual assault cases on the podcast. I suppose saying sexual assault's not the trigger, but okay. 
Trigger warning, we're about to read a story from the New York Times about a lawsuit filed against Vin Diesel for sexual assault. I skimmed it already. It's not ditty bad, but it's bad. This just posted on the New York Times about an hour ago. A former assistant to Vin Diesel filed a sexual battery lawsuit against the actor on Thursday, saying he groped her and pinned her against the wall of an Atlanta hotel room during the filming of the fifth Fast and Furious movie in 2010. The woman says the encounter took place less than two weeks after she was hired to work for Mr. Diesel. She says he grabbed her, groped her breast, and forcibly kissed her while she repeatedly said no, according to the lawsuit. It also says Mr. Diesel pulled her dress up and moved to pull down her underwear, again, according to the lawsuit, before the woman screamed and ran toward the bathroom. Reading further down, some more details. While he had her pinned against the wall with his body, he grabbed her hand and placed it on his erect penis. When she again refused to engage, according to the lawsuit, he began masturbating while keeping her pinned to the wall. Jesus. The woman says that hours after the encounter in the hotel room, she received a call from an executive at the production company. It was Mr. Diesel's sister who told her that she was no longer needed, i.e. she was fired after she refused to sexually engage with him. Because everyone always asks why now, it's included in the lawsuit. It says the woman remained silent for all these years because she was afraid to speak out against one of the world's highest grossing actors. Afraid she would be ostracized from the industry, which had a pattern of protecting powerful men and silencing survivors of sexual harassment and assault. And concerned that as a green card holder, that speaking out could jeopardize her potential future citizenship. That's what we've got so far. Oh, dear. We'll watch as it plays out. You know what I say. I don't put anything past anybody. I hope he didn't do that shit, but we'll see. Let me just click on the Hollywood Reporter and see if there's any additional details that the New York Times didn't have. I just know from reading all these lawsuits, some places share more details than others. Oh, yeah. Okay, Hollywood Reporter does have worse details. Again, I'm offering a trigger warning. There's way more details here. They said the woman whose responsibilities include organizing and accompanying Diesel to parties to ensure no photographs of him were taken says she was once asked to wait in the actor's suite while he entertained other guests. Once the other guests left, the suit claims he grabbed the woman's wrist, one with each of his hands, and pulled her onto the bed. She says she immediately tried to escape his grasp, at which point she left the bedroom. The suit says that, according to the complaint, the woman says Diesel followed her, and then he dropped to his knees, pushed her dress up toward her waist, and molested her body. When he moved to pull her underwear down, she screamed and in a panic ran down the hallway towards the bathroom, knocking Vin Diesel to the floor. It says after he stood up, that's when he pinned her to the wall with the left side of his body and then began to grope the woman, including her breast. Then it says he pulled his penis out of his underwear and began to masturbate. The woman heard Vin Diesel make groaning noises and then he quickly released her, went into the bathroom and turned the sink on with the bathroom door open. 
Oh, God. And the Hollywood Reporter has the same details, because it's all from the lawsuit, that the sister called hours later and terminated her. The company didn't need any extra help, despite her only having the job for less than two weeks. The lawsuit says the message was clear. She was fired for courageously resisting Vin Diesel's sexual assault. Vin Diesel would be protected and his sexual assault covered up. Oh, okay. Also, according to the lawsuit, the woman was also propositioned by a supervisor, not Vin Diesel, but somebody else who worked for the production company days before this alleged assault. She said she was summoned to the supervisor's room, a man, where he took off his shirt, got into bed, and said, come here, at which point she left. She's suing for sexual battery, gender-based discrimination, hostile work environment, and retaliation, among others. It's a civil suit. She's seeking unspecified damages for humiliation, emotional distress, and mental and physical pain. Hollywood Reporter notes that Diesel doesn't currently have any projects in production, but he and One Race, that's the production company the woman's also suing along with Diesel, are attached to produce an untitled Fast and Furious movie starring Dwayne Johnson. They were. I doubt that's going to go forward now. The film also doesn't have a director or a start date, but it was expected, but it is expected, was, it is expected to be the next Fast, Fur- the, the next Fast and Furious movie to hit theaters, to be followed by Fast 11, is that where we are? Which would star Diesel and would be a swan song for his character. Um, I don't really see that happening right now. Not until this lawsuit goes through. Oh dear. They've got the whole lawsuit on The Hollywood Reporter if you want to take a read. We'll keep an eye on this one too. As promised, I did not know when I picked up this book in Barnes & Noble that day. Because this book was not even what I went to the store for. I went to the store for... What was the book we read before this? We've been talking about Sheila and Bob so long, I don't even remember. Jada Pinkett Smith. I went to the store to buy Jada Pinkett Smith's book. I ended up buying Sheila Johnson's book and then Pinky Cole's book and then Nicole Walter's book. I thought we were going to talk about Sheila Johnson's book for three episodes, but it takes so long to just get through 50 pages because there's so much information in this book. But this is our last bit of Sheila and Bob. And it's mostly Sheila, thank God, because Miss Sheila finally left Bob. And live the life that she was supposed to be living all along. I feel a little bad about it. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. And I thoroughly enjoyed discussing this book. I done started a whole unofficial book club because of this book. Thank you, Miss Sheila, for the inspiration. Sorry, my WhatsApp just went off. I'm checking my messages. I met a fine man last night. I ain't never seen nothing like him in my whole damn life. I acted like a white girl on a black athlete. I was not leaving that man's space without him seeing me and without a way to reach him in the future. I think he felt the same way because I was smiling with all of my teeth and he was smiling with all of his teeth. It was like Nelly and Ashanti and that bitch. I was shameless. I say interested men act interested, but also interested people act interested. I don't really get too excited about very many people, but when I do, baby. He took my number and he texted me immediately. and He was like, when can I see you again? He said, I'm going to the roof tomorrow. I'll be there by one. Can you join me? It's Dutty December in Ghana. I'm currently living the life that everybody thought I was living when I first moved over here. I need to get a chance to get set up, find my social circles, find my people, learn the lay of the land. But now that I have, I'm out here living like I'm Vivian.
If you're a long-term listener or a reader on social media, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Stay tuned. <sighs> I really think I'm schizophrenic. Last week, I was depressed as hell. This week, I'm like, fuck it all. I'm on my L. Varner shit. Fuck it all. That's not the point. The point is, we need to wrap up our conversation about Miss Sheila and that nigga Bob. <laughs> Last we spoke about Miss Sheila, she had just married her new boo, Bill. Bill with the bad knee, who got down on one knee and asked Miss Sheila to marry him. Also, shout out to the people that sent me pictures of the wedding cake. Miss Sheila talked about a cake designed by Sylvia Weinstock. I wasn't familiar with Sylvia Weinstock. I asked people, I said, I'm a little busy right now. I don't have a lot of time for research. But can you send me pictures of Miss Sylvia Weinstock's cakes? Baby, y'all sent me pictures. Those cakes are works of art. Sheila said she had a 400-pound tiered wedding cake. Once I saw the cake, I was like, she paid good money for that cake. I don't even care what it tastes like. It was so damn pretty. Sylvia Weinstock, may she rest in peace, was out here making works of art. But we're picking up on chapter 13. It's called Zero to Sixty. It's page 205 for those of us who are reading. Sheila says it's 2005. She says she received a call from Abe Poland. She says Abe is a beloved local figure. He's the owner of the Washington Wizards, the NBA team, the Washington Capitals hockey team, and the Washington Mystics, the WNBA team. She says he's also the man who revitalized D.C.'s Chinatown neighborhood by building a brand new arena there on his own dime. It says that Abe called Sheila and he asked for a meeting. So Sheila agrees. She has no idea what Abe wants. She thinks Abe wants her to do some kind of ad for the WNBA. He knows that Sheila is a big advocate for women. So she thinks that that's what it is. And he says, no, I want you to own my teams. And she says, what? He said, I'll give you the financials. It's a good investment. He was like, I don't want to do it anymore, but I want to turn it over to somebody who's going to do it right. And I want that to be you. And she's like, what? So Abe makes the offer. Sheila's very confused, but she sits on it for a minute. And she was like, you know what? I could do right by this. So she goes ahead and buys all three of the professional teams. And she notes on page 207, that's how I became the only black female co-owner of three professional sports teams. She says, I was excited to be involved with the Wizards and the Cats, but I was thrilled to own the Mystics a team of fantastic women who would end up stealing my heart. Sheila notes a page later. She says the call was not so much out of the blue. She says that she and Bob had known Abe for years. And she said every time they would run into each other, she said Bob would tell Abe that he wanted to own the Wizards, which back in the day were called the Bullets. She says this was Bob's long-held dream, not only personally as the co-founder of BET, but Bob's theory was Washington is a black city and the NBA is a black league, so it only made sense that the Bullets should have a black owner. Bob's goal was to brand the Bullets as Black America's team, broadcast their games on BET, and sell merchandise all over the country. Sheila acknowledges that Bob had a great idea, but he wasn't able to make headway with Abe. She says in 1994, Bob decided, she says to play hardball, I say he decided to be an ass. Abe wanted to build this new arena for his team. And he was counting on the D.C. government to help him out. Bob intervened and told city officials that Abe should pay for the arena himself. 
and he went as far as to hire lobbyists to fight Abe's deal. And he even sued to stop it from going forward. Sheila says DC was strapped for cash. Bob's old friend was Mayor Marion Barry, and he withdrew an offer to give public funds to Abe to build the arena. Sheila points out that thanks in large part to Bob, who was bitter that Abe wouldn't sell him the Wizards way back in the day, Abe had no choice but to pay for this $200 million arena himself. And Sheila says Abe would never forget it. So Sheila says the night before the press conference announcing her deal with Abe to buy these three teams, she said she decided to give Bob a heads up. I wouldn't have called his ass. I would have let him read about it in the Washington Post like everybody else. She said she called Bob and she said, hey, I just want you to know that I bought into Lincoln Holdings. I'm going to be an owner of the Wizards, the Caps and the Mystics. Sheila says Bob snapped. He said, what? Sheila, what are you talking about? She said, I repeated myself. He said, don't do this to me, Sheila. Don't do this to me. As if Sheila owed you a goddamn thing after all you've done to her. You made that lady miss her college graduation and wouldn't take her to the White House after she was all dressed up. Bob, 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 stop this shit now. Stop it now. Sheila says to Bob, it's already done. We're announcing it tomorrow. She continues. She says, oh my God, you would have thought I had burned his house down. He was so angry. He went on and on until I said, I've got to go. Then he called me a couple more times before I finally just stopped picking up the phone. It's no fun when the rabbits got the gun. Sheila got a billion of her own money. She about to spend that shit. Sheila goes on for a little bit and she said, you know, if Bob ended up getting his feelings hurt, that wasn't Abe's problem. And you know what? It wasn't mine either. Sheila, a new woman. Miss Sophia home now. Sheila is away from Bob. She got a billion of her own money. She's talking her shit and buying his shit or the shit he wanted. She started working with a nonprofit called CARE. CARE stood for Cooperative for Assistance and Relief Everywhere, international humanitarian organization that provides emergency aid and assistance to people around the world. They run programs fighting poverty, providing safe water and food, and encouraging economic development among many other initiatives. Sheila points out that CARE had multiple programs aimed at helping girls and women. They provided microfinancing for women in developing countries to start their own businesses. They worked to stop human trafficking, gender discrimination, and violence against women. She was informed that women and girls make up more than 60% of people who suffer from hunger and 70% of people in extreme poverty. Also, more than a third of women worldwide have suffered physical or sexual violence or both. Sheila said she listened to the CARE presentation for 10 minutes and said, okay, I'm in. Sheila notes on page 211, she said, I had a private plane at that point. And she told her partners at CARE that they could use it in support of their programs. And she started traveling around the globe. She says places like Guatemala, Ecuador, Rwanda, Tanzania, South Africa. All countries where CARE was actively supporting women in need. Child Sheila got some money and some power and was like, let me empower some others. I love it. She talks about the importance of supporting women. She says women have got to bond together to help each other break the dependency so many of us have on men. She says CARE was specifically focused on women. They took responsibility for their families and communities in ways that men often did not. 
They supported each other with empathy and strength, and they took care of the next generation, the children who might actually have a chance to grow out of poverty. She said her partner at CARE used to tell her, give a man a dollar and he'll spend it on himself. Give a woman a dollar and she'll spend it on the community. She said she was having a conversation once with her partner at CARE. And she said at this point in her life, she said she hadn't told many people about what she'd gone through with Bob. But she was preparing herself to present an award to a powerful woman who'd done a lot for other women. And she said she found herself overwhelmed with feelings, thinking about the incredible parallels between my life and those of the women CARE was helping. She said she was talking to her business partner at CARE and her ex-husband came up in the conversation. She asked her business partner, it's a man, she said, do you know what it feels like to be erased? To have someone try to turn you into nothing? She said he just looked at her and shook his head. And she said, that's what Bob tried to do to me. And he almost managed to do it too. But with the help of my own village and women and my new husband and my children and these beautiful people from CARE, I was well and truly on my way back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We talked previously about how Miss Sheila had bought the land in Middleburg to create Salamander and it came to fruition. She said she wanted to invest in other hotels. Her first hotel after Salamander, this was 2006. She said Woodlands Resort and Inn in Somerville, South Carolina. I'm not familiar. Has anyone gone to visit Woodlands Resort and Inn in Somerville, South Carolina? Can someone tell me about their experience there? If it's anything like Salamander, I I know it's good leisure. She also owns the Innisbrook Resort and Golf Club in Palm Harbor, Florida, just outside Tampa. Has anyone been there? Please tell me about that experience if you've been. She talks about Innisbrook being a smart investment. She paid $35 million for it. They put another 20 to $40 million in it to turn it into a world-class property. Ms. Sheila notes that she became the only woman owner of a golf resort on the PGA Tour, and obviously the only black woman. She said she wrote a memo to the USGA board, United States Golf Association, suggesting ways to get more people of color involved in their sport. She says, I don't know if they took my recommendations, but golf became just one more in a long line of traditionally white spaces I wanted to try to integrate. From classical music to equestrian events to Confederate country and now to golf, I was always drawn to places that black people don't usually go. I like the challenge of integrating those spaces, but more important, I wanted to open up possibilities for young people who might excel in places their parents and grandparents never got a chance to explore. I'm on page 220. We talked about there was a meeting for Miss Sheila to get permission to build Salamander. They started the process and they were building. She notes on page 218, building a luxury resort from scratch is an expensive undertaking. We knew it was going to cost in the neighborhood of 160 million American USD dollars and dineros from start to finish. She notes that she was paying for it herself 
without investors, just like she was paying for the renovations at Woodland and in Innisbrook. And she was going deeper and deeper and deeper in debt. She was doing okay for a minute because, you know, she had like a billion. But she said the first half of 2008, the economy started to falter. And she says on September 29th, the Dow fell almost 800 points, the largest drop in the history of the market. And she said, of course, the luxury resorts I was spending all this money on weren't going to draw a whole lot of guests if the U.S. economy truly collapsed. So she got a call from her accountant who suggested, I think you should put a hold on Salamander, which for obvious reasons, she was devastated. She said, I had contractors, builders, architects, designers working 24-7 to create the resort. We were so close. And now he wanted me to pull the plug? She says her accountant was the type of person who could see over the horizon, so she trusted him. She said, we put a fence around the empty building, sealed up the windows and doors, and called a halt to further construction activities. And then we waited for two long years. That shit would have drove me out my mind. Oh my God. I'm over here flipping out about paying for a condo. Miss Sheila got $160 million invested in this shit. She was a mess. She points out that Bob, this man is just, he is just a villain. I don't understand how one man can be this evil. She says, while the building was on hold... She says one person who seemed overly interested in this distressing turn of events was, no surprise, Bob Johnson. As usual, he came swooping in full of opinions, telling me I should cut my losses and partner up with the Four Seasons hotels and resorts so they could take over the project. He probably wanted to get his thumb into the pie, and he also couldn't resist his usual habit of telling me what I was doing wrong, then insisting he knew the best way forward. She said she told Bob that she knew what she was doing, even if inside she felt like she was crumbling. And she said everything that was happening was tapping into her oldest, deepest fears. She says, I was in these three resort projects up to my neck and I was scared that they were going to swallow me. She says, once again, I found myself flashing back to my family's kitchen, hearing the EMT saying I was going to have to pay $85 for my mother's ambulance, realizing that I didn't have it. And I didn't know how to get it, fearing that I was standing on the edge of a deep hole about to fall in. She says, I knew intellectually that I wouldn't end up in poverty, but that didn't matter. Deep down in my soul, I felt that same fear. She says she went to her accountant and she says, if I were to lose everything, at least I know how to sew. She says the accountant just looked at her. She continued. She says, I know how to wait tables or I could work as a caregiver. I have a lot of basic skills that I could use to earn money. She says the accountant must have thought I sounded like a crazy person, but I'm here to tell you that no matter how much money I have in the bank, I still think about this kind of thing all the time. She's not the only one. I went to this seminar for business women. I want to say it was in Antigua. Is back in like 2013, 2014. I was taping a TV show at the time and I ran off from production to go to this event. Yana Vanzant was the keynote that year. It was a really beautiful event. But I remember meeting this woman. She worked in finance, probably like 33, 34 at the time. And this woman was asking me about like my financial future. I just quit my job at Essence. I was freelancing 
for, I think, three different publications. I was writing eight articles every week, so sometimes three a day. I was making six figures, but like just over six figures, not like well into it. I was working a lot. I was completely burnt out and I didn't have a financial plan. I was making all this money and I was just keeping it in my bank account. I wasn't even putting it in stocks at the time. And I remember talking to this woman and so she was like, you know, what is your plan? And I told her some of like my big hopes and dreams and what I hope to, you know, earn. And she was like, well, what is the plan for that? And, you know, I really didn't have anything solid. And she was like, okay, well, if that doesn't pan out, like then what's like the B plan? And I said something very similar to like Sheila Johnson. I think I've said it on here. And I was like, you know, if things don't pan out, then there's always work at the post office. And she pointed out, she was like, this is a uniquely woman thing to say. Women think that like they get this one shot at a big opportunity to make a good chunk of money. And most women don't feel deserving of it, but they feel if that doesn't work, they feel like they'll just go back to like the most humblest of positions. She said, if you talk to men, they think they get fired from their, their good six figure job when they'll just go and get another six figure job. And she was like, very uniquely high earning, powerful, prestigious black women think that if they lose their job, then they'll go back to doing what Sheila's describing here or what I said, work at the post office. She's talking about, well, I can be a caregiver. I can make some clothes. I can wait tables. She has a college degree. She has a long history, about 35 years at this point of making good money. And her default is like, if this doesn't work out for me, I'll go back to doing unskilled labor. I don't know what the hell that's about. Maybe we need to call Tiffany Aliche. That's our finance expert. Maybe she can break down the psychology of this for us. Because I don't know it. I just know that I said it and the woman looked at me like I was crazy. And was like, if you lose your current journalism jobs, go get another journalism job. It's like, oh, okay. We're on chapter 14. Robert Redford had come to the construction site of Salamander for a visit. She knows that she'd met him at the Sundance Film Festival. And she was having a conversation with him about a resort that he owns in Utah. And he brought up the idea of her starting a film festival. She had a little foray into film. She had produced a film called Kicking It. It was a documentary that followed six people who played soccer in the 2006 Homeless World Cup. Colin Farrell narrated that film. And she notes that in 2008, it was screened at Sundance Film Festival, which is how she met Robert Redford. She also had a film that was documenting the work that was going on with CARE. It was called A Powerful Noise. She said that film ended up premiering to rave reviews at the Tribeca Film Festival. There's also a couple more documentaries. There's Ella S. El Matador, about two female matadors in Spain, The Other City, about fighting the HIV AIDS crisis in D.C. Now we're on page 227, and they've restarted construction on Salamander. And Sheila talks about, she's been collecting artwork forever and a day. And she says to decorate Salamander, this is one of my favorite things about the resort. She'd been collecting pieces by black artists all over the world, from Harlem to Kenya. She said, I, I gathered up these treasures and carried them down to the resort. On page 231, we're at the opening of Salamander Resort. For whatever reason, Bob's ass shows up. And I'm like, why are you here? Why are you here? She says, the look on his face was one I hadn't seen in a very long time, if ever. He said, oh my God, Sheila, this place is gorgeous. You really did it. 
I have to hand it to you. You pulled it off. She said he seemed really surprised, like he couldn't believe I was capable of actually succeeding like this. What I wanted to say was, I always could. You just never gave me the chance. She said the most important guest at her opening, though, was her mother. She says at the opening ceremony, she was right there with me in her wheelchair. She beamed throughout that whole day, rolling all over the property and telling everyone how proud she was of me. I was so grateful to have her there, this woman who had seen me through my worst times, and it made it to seeing my best. She says, when my life had crumbled, when I was down so far, I didn't know if I'd ever get up again. She told me, Sheila, you will get your power back. (sighs) Oh, I'm crying. You can hear me crying. Jesus. We're on page 223. She says her mother said to her just before she passed, she said, just think, Sheila, if you and Bob hadn't done BET, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't have this resort. Sheila says, I thought a lot about those words and I knew she was right. Which, I mean, Miss Sheila knows her life far better than I do. Far be it for me to tell someone else about how their life is lived. But I want to just push back on that a bit. And I'll be like, Is that true? I think sometimes we, especially as women, we get tied to these narratives. If I hadn't been through this suffering, if I hadn't endured this certain thing, then my life wouldn't have turned out, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Sheila has had a knack for making money since she was in her early 20s. Maybe it wasn't Bob's vision for BET, but maybe she had some other investment. I don't believe the narrative that people who become very, very successful, that it was just like this one turn of events and that that's what led to whatever. If you chose a different route, who's to say that you wouldn't have landed at the same destination? Maybe Miss Sheila in this resort was all faded for her. Like maybe she was always going to end up as that. But Sheila's belief, she says, um, as awful as that period, she's referring to Bob and BET, was in so many ways, it enabled me to flourish over the last two decades in ways I'm not sure I would have otherwise. I actually think she would have. That she's entitled to her own thoughts about her own life. She knows her life better than I do. And she points out, she says, I was crushed by my father's actions and and they created a fear in me that led to bad decisions and insecurities that would upend my life. But they also instilled a fierceness, a determination to protect my own children and a determination to succeed, all of which led me to where I am now. Okay, so take everything that I said as one theory and then also allow me to pile this other theory onto it that I do think it's fair to think that like everything bad that's happened to you and good, but everything that's happened to you has made you exactly who you are, good, bad, and indifferent. So even the things in your life that may have happened that were tragic, and it's not the only way to learn the lesson, but it's the way that you learned it. If you got something from it and it gave you something powerful, Was it worth it? Maybe it was. Would you have learned it another way if you didn't learn it that way? Maybe. I don't know. But it's the way that you got it. And it happened in a way that helped you achieve things that really made you happy. Everything happens for a reason, I guess. Sheila says, I wouldn't want to live through that pain again. But the truth is, I wouldn't be the woman I am today if I hadn't gone through it. Is that true? Maybe. She says, I walked through the fire and I survived. I am 
The Salamander. This is some good-ass writing. All right, well, now we're at page 235. We're at the epilogue. She says, uh, it's been more than a decade since she cut the ribbon at Salamander Resort. She says she did, in fact, start that film festival. They were able to book a, a good slate of amazing movies. She said, showing the butler felt especially sweet, not because I was an executive producer on that film, but also because my husband, Bill, had a small part as a preacher. You recall, Bill was, in fact, an actor, as was Sheila. And I had no idea she was a producer on that film. You learn something new every day. That's why I read. Sheila has also branched out into other properties. She owns the Aurora in Anguilla, the Half Moon Resort in Jamaica. That's one of my favorite hotels. I love that place. As well as the elegant Hotel Bennett in Charleston. Has anybody been to the Hotel Bennett? Let me know if you've been. I want a review. Thank you. She, she says in 2001, she says she took over the Aspen Meadows Resort. She says, I can't wait to bring some color to that place. I have never been to Aspen. It is on my bucket list. I don't know when I'm going to go because I don't really do American cold. But I would go to Aspen to stay at Miss Sheila's Resort. And then she talks about taking over the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Southwest Washington. I've been to the hotel when it was the Mandarin. I have not been since it became Salamander, D.C., But she points out, she says, this is the first time that, quote, and unquote, Chocolate City, which D.C. is no longer, but, you know, have your nostalgia, if you will, has had a black-owned luxury hotel. Good for her. Sheila ain't done. Sheila ain't done. She says she's in her third act. In addition to all the things that I've listed, she's also been producing Broadway shows, such as Thoughts of a Colored Man. I remember people talking about that. It was highly praised. Paradise Square. I'm not familiar with that one. She says she chairs events at the Metropolitan Opera, The Met, if you watch Gilded Age. She advocates for black shows. She says, I put 50 African-American students through Harvard Kennedy School. And she also created Family Reunion, a three-day festival of black American cuisine, which draws chefs from all over the country to Salamander Resort. I mentioned this to one of my friends when I was in D.C., and so she was like, absolutely, you must go. I was talking to one of my friends who's going with her job to Paris for the Olympics, and the Olympics ends one week. Her husband is coming over to meet her for her last week of work, and then he wants to go to South of France for a week. And I was telling her, and I was like, oh, honey, you absolutely must go to the South of France. And I was like, you absolutely must go to Cannes, and you must go to Nice. I was like, can for the beach clubs alone and niece for the culture and the eating. You absolutely must go. And so she was like, D, honestly, I want to come back to D.C. because I want to go to Miss Sheila's event, family reunion. And I was like, girl, are you going to skip the south of France to go to Virginia? And she was like, girl, you haven't been. You don't understand. And I was like, have you been? Is it that good? And she was like, no, but all my friends go. She said she felt like she would be on the beach in the south of France checking her phone scrolling Instagram and having major FOMO that all of her friends are at the family reunion at Salamander. And I was like, you would have FOMO from the South of France? She thought that she would. Her plan is to come back. Her husband is not happy about it. We'll see where they end up. But I was like, girl, the South of France is the South of France. That said, because I've actually done the South of France, I actually want to go to family reunion. (laughs) I might be one of the people she's scrolling on Instagram being like, this bitch told me not to go. And then she went. But I've already done the South of France. You got to do the South of France first. 
Sheila notes that um, her children are both grown and married. She has two grandbabies. She says she and Bill are about to celebrate their 18th 1-8 wedding anniversary. And she also notes this, which I think is very good. She says, even though Bill and I got together not long after the divorce, I really struggled during those early years of marriage. She said, I still had nightmares, feelings of insecurity, even PTSD. She says, while writing this book, I tried to think of the first time I felt truly happy and at peace. She says, what popped into my head was a moment in Paris with Bill. They traveled there for a party. They spent a week. And she said, there's just something magical, not because of anything fancy or out of the ordinary. She said, Bill and I spent most of our time walking through the streets of Paris, stopping at cafes for coffees and pastries, popping into art galleries, talking and enjoying each other's companies. It felt like first love again, that flush of excitement and the happiness of simply being together. She said they had a hotel room with a view of the Eiffel Tower, which was lit up in bright colors for fashion week. She says, one evening, they just sat by the window, enjoying a drink and talking. And she said, I took in that magnificent view and my heart swelled. She said, in that moment, I thought, I'm okay. She said, I looked at Bill and said simply, I feel truly happy, maybe for the first time in my life. She says, I was at peace. I knew I was loved. And at long last, after a lifetime of second guessing myself, I believed that I deserved it. Look, a good man will do that for you. And Paris will too, independently of each other. Put the two together, girl. I'm so happy for Miss Sheila. This is a well-earned happy. She said, if I could go back in time and talk to my younger self, I would tell her this. Trust your instincts. Get to know who you are before you give yourself to someone else. Believe that you can find happiness and that you deserve it. You are going to be okay. And then she repeats. You are going to be okay. I drew a little heart after that paragraph. You are going to be okay. If Miss Sheila can survive all the shit she went through with Bob for 30 years and change and still find a happy ending, girl, your story ain't over yet. You can find some happy too. I love Miss Sheila. Reading this book and then sharing it on the podcast and then receiving the feedback from the audience has been one of the highlights of Ratchet and Respectable. This book, as salacious and terrible and hard detailed and sad as it could be at times, Miss Sheila's grace and resilience and her ability to overcome, rise up from shit that has broken a lot of people to still somehow be whole is very inspirational. I thank her for sharing her story with us. I got a lot out of this read. All right, that's the episode. Thank you for listening to Ratchet and Respectable for the last four years, 400 episodes. It's slowly sinking in that it's kind of a big deal. We'll be back in February. I hope you'll come back when I'm back. Talk soon, soon enough, in a little bit. Happy holidays, happy new year, happy MLK day too. See you later, but not goodbye.